intellectual university crowds are tough. Their pride and passion for the pursuit of truth, but not for the truth, causes many of them to mock, to reject, and to just keep on debating. As we turn with our study leader to Acts chapter 17, verse 16, we have a lot to learn from how the Apostle Paul interacted with a group of first century intellects. Mary and I got to go down to Austin yesterday. We got half of our grandkids living in Austin. Joel lives in the northern part of Austin. In fact, you can look out and about a mile down to the south, you can see the big UT Tower. And then Josh and Laura and their two kids live way south. So we had a great time hanging around with them. But just being in Austin, Austin's a different place. How many agree with that? You Aggies hate it, but Austin's a different place. It's a university town. And Mary and I, even driving back last night at 35, you think of, man, this is a different place than Midlothian. Because in Austin, you're almost guaranteed to meet a guy like Philip. Philip, when he was a kid, he had some really orthodox Jewish friends, and they were really religious. They went to synagogue every single Shabbat, every single Sabbath. But Philip went to University of Texas, and about his third year, he had to get through with his three hours that he needed for philosophy. Whether you're a mathematician or a scientist, whatever you are, an engineer, you got to get those three hours in in philosophy. So he took a philosophy course. He thought it was going to be boring as anything, but it ended up he met someone that believed a lot like him. You see, he was taking some of the advanced courses in science, especially in physics, and he learned in quantum mechanics through Schrodinger's equation that you could describe all the physical processes. If you got way down to the deepest level of the material universe, that you could explain things with, with wave particle theory. He got all into this stuff that they're trying to find on the cyclotron, like we're looking for a Hicks principle. And Philip had really come to believe that reality really boils down to mesons and quarks and maybe Hicks principle and electrons and the nucleus of the atom, protons and stuff that we're a little bit more familiar with, some of us that are older. But basically it was the idea is all there is is this stuff. And that's what makes all the universe, just the collision of all these particles or waves, whatever you want to call them, that's what life is. And science has done incredible things in developing technology, in explaining how physical processes work. So Philip came to believe that's all there is. Now, he wasn't a thoroughgoing atheist. You know, he really believed that there might be some great force. You know, he was raised as a Star Wars kid. So he believed there might be, you know, the force be with you. There might be some distant beings but they don't really deal with us. This life is all there is. And when you die, you don't need to be afraid of it because Philip had come to the conclusion when you die, your physical body dies and your soul dies. Your material body dies, and that's really all there is, just the collision of those particles or waves. And when you die, you don't need to worry about anything because you just cease to exist. Your soul is gone as well, your personality as well. Then he had to make, you know, what do you do with your everyday life? So he did what a, he, he came to the conclusion. And interesting enough, in philosophy class, he learned someone else that came to this conclusion that the way that you needed to live your life, there has to be right and wrong. So right for Philip is what brings pleasure to himself and doesn't hurt other people. Any experience that he has, like any experience that he has, what he has in business, what he has in his home, what he has in his career, what he has in sexuality, if, if it brings pleasure to him, it's okay. 
And there's a caveat, though. It can't bring pain to somebody else, and it can't bring pain to him. So good equals what brings pleasure to me and what doesn't hurt anyone else. And then on the corollary, bad, evil, is not something some God up there decided, but evil is what brings pain to you, what doesn't bring you pleasure, and what doesn't hurt someone else as well. And we need to be careful. He's really concerned about others. Not really thinking through about how you could go from little particles and only material things that come up with that it even is important to care about whether you hurt someone else. But this really resonated with him. It's the way almost all of his friends lived, okay? So he's got this great philosophy that's holding his life together. And when he graduates, he decides to settle into that university town like a lot of UT students do. And he's working hard, you know, getting going in his career. And he lives for the weekend when we can meet on Saturday night and drink some beer with his friends and have a barbecue. Now, at his barbecue, he's got another friend that while they're sipping beer at the barbecue, he's got a guy named Stephen. And Stephen believes a lot like Philip. Only Stephen's a lot more austere. You see, Philip is a really good old boy. You'd enjoy being with him. He believes in pleasure. He believes in having a good time. He believes in in friendships and parties. And even is a good old guy because he tries to keep it all under control because you don't want to hurt someone else. So he doesn't drive drunk. He doesn't leave parties drunk. And he's always careful to have a designated driver. He's really a good guy. Stephen is really hard to get close to. He's austere. He really believes a lot like Philip does that all there is is a material world. He's also kind of like Philip. He believes there might be some gods out there. In fact, he believes there is an ultimate reason in the world. And he capitalized it. Stephen capitalizes that. Stephen's really in the idea that the ultimate reality that's out there is the universe. And he doesn't believe that the universe just happened by chance. He thinks there's a great big mind out there called reason And that's behind everything. And that reason has has revealed to us virtue. So Stephen's really into courage. He's really into strength. He's really a manly man. He believes in holding your society together by believing in courage and believing in patriotism. And and he's really into politics. But he's kind of distant because he's kind of like Dr. Spock. He doesn't have a lot of passion. It's, It's all in his head. One thing, though, that Stephen and Philip both really agree on They really agree that when they announce a new lecture series at one of the big lecture halls of the University of Texas, Stephen and Philip will be right on the first row because one thing that they really agree on is the fact that, man, when there's a new idea and there's somebody that is Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, Dr. So-and-so, and they come to Austin to give a lecture, man, Stephen and Philip are right on the front row. Have any of you ever met people like I just described? Okay, if you haven't, you're going to. In fact, the truth of the matter is some of you are like Stephen and Philip. In fact, there's some young people here, for example, that when they go away to the University of Texas, they're going to be just like Philip and Stephen. And the ideas that I just shared with you about, they're not just some ideas that Stephen Hawking just came up with or that Christopher Hitchens was describing about atheism. Epicurus is the first philosopher that Philip read about in his introduction to philosophy. And Epicurus... 300 years before Christ, said that all there is is a collision of atoms. Whatever gods there might be are very distant, and good is you enhancing your pleasure and decreasing your pain, and evil is keeping away from pain and being sure you don't hurt other people. And Epicurus said, live for having a really good time with your friends. And he wasn't just teaching hedonism. 
Like he really believed, man, you need to think things through so that you have long-term pleasure. And so if you want to read that philosophy, that's a very dominant philosophy. It's called Epicureanism. And in the city of Athens, way back in the first century, the Apostle Paul met some Epicureans. The other guy that I described about Stephen that was more serious and really believed in universal reason, like there's a lot of you here that believe, like I, I've studied science and, and I just can't buy the fact that it just happened by accident. There really is a capital R reason. And there's an intelligent design behind there. It's really there. So you're like that. The Stoics believe that. The Stoics really were careful not to offend the Athenian gods, the Greek gods, or the Roman gods. They were willing to let you worship and go to your little temples and stuff. But what they really wanted to teach you is you needed to live for your reason. You need to learn how to have logic. And if you want to read Aristotle, if you want to read Plato, you'll learn all about logic. That's Stephen. And the Zeno that created Stoicism and then those Plato influenced a lot of that thinking. By the time of the first century, that was a very popular idea that you need to live for virtue. You need to be committed to the Roman Empire. You need to be really committed to Athens. What I want all of you to understand is that there's nothing new under the sun. And so there's some of you that deep in your soul, you say, Dave, I really struggle with the idea of Jesus rising again from the dead. And I really struggle with the idea that Jesus is the only way. And, and what about what I learned in science and everything? One thing I'd like you to learn about today is that there's nothing new under the sun and that you can ask all of the questions you want. As a young person, you can ask all the questions you want. But as your pastor, I don't want you to get to the end of your days and find out that all these old ideas have been tried and they didn't lead you to the truth. And the premise that I want you to think about today is how do you talk to Stephen and Philip? Do you care about them? Do we care about them as a church family? If you are a Stephen and Philip, how should we talk to you today? And one of the really cool things is we get to see the Apostle Paul, who is one of the greatest, greatest intellects of his day in the first century. In fact, he would be one of the greatest intellects of all time. But he's also a committed man of faith. He changed from being a really Orthodox Jew to being a really committed follower of the Messiah, Jesus. And he was traveling everywhere. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17. We've learned how to speak to a Berean crowd that searches the Scripture daily to find out whether these things be true. Today, we're going to talk about how in the world do we as believers talk to our university friends? How do we talk to an Athenian crowd? If I go to Yale, how do I interact with the faculty there? If I go to UT or if I go down to, and talk to Aggies that are on the faculty, how do I talk to them? And Acts chapter 17 tells us how to do that. Look at Acts chapter 17, verse 16. The very first thing that I pick up here is that Paul cares about an unbelieving city. He cares about an idolatrous city. He gets disturbed. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? Look at how Dr. Luke introduced this section about Paul being disturbed by false gods. While Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas are still up in Berea. They're getting the church together in Berea and trying to solidify it and trying to get elders appointed, all that kind of stuff that Paul talks to us about in the, in the pastoral epistles. But so Paul's by himself in Athens. So what do you do when you're in a university town and you're by yourself? Paul was waiting for them in Athens, but he was greatly distressed. He was really, he was concerned. He was troubled. That's the idea here. He was distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, that's a really hard issue. You see, as you go to Athens, Athens was filled with beautiful architecture. 
And Paul's not disturbed about the fact that the Parthenon is there and all these incredible, beautiful Greek buildings. In fact, if you're an architect, you need to study Greek architecture. The Parthenon is one of the most beautiful buildings you ever need. It doesn't say that Paul was disturbed about their architecture. So if you go into architecture and you learn about how to build buildings, the Lord of heaven is the source of all that. And it doesn't say that Paul was concerned that they would meet in the stoa, that was the place in the center of the city where they would get together and they would discuss things and they would, they would debate with each other. It doesn't say Paul was disturbed about the fact that Athens was the university city of the first century. When the big Roman general went to attack Athens. He didn't say, I've come to destroy all your buildings. I haven't come to destroy your university, but I have come to put down a group of rebels that are rebelling against the Roman Empire. So when the Roman general conquered Athens before the time of Jesus, he left the buildings there, and and Athens actually became the intellectual center of the Roman Empire, and it's almost like the Greeks conquered the Romans. So Paul doesn't demean that. What he's disturbed about is idolatry. Are you disturbed about idolatry? What is idolatry? Let's suppose that there is a personal God, and he actually is right here this morning. In fact, he's not only here, every single one of you is existing because of him. You breathe because of him, and you're going to breathe physically until he says no more breath. And you're alive. You have this wonderful thing. Suddenly, when you're about two and a half, you start having memories, but you were living for two and a half, three years, some of you that are a little bit slower, five years, where you don't remember anything, but your parents tell you stories, you were alive. And let's suppose that there's a supreme being, that he's the one that created you in the womb. When you came out, he gave you that breath. When you cried out, sometimes they spanked you in the rear end, but that's a gift. How many of you are breathing this morning? The fact that you're breathing this morning proves that the eternal God of the universe is alive and well. But you know the truth of the matter is we live in a culture that thinks God is very far away and he's very hard to find. In fact, uh, Charles Taylor, who's in his 80s, teaches up in Canada at a big university there. He just wrote a book called The Secular Mind. It's a big book. It's about this thick. Charles Taylor tried to explain is why in 1500 almost everybody believed that there was at least a supreme being that was involved in our lives and why he can teach at a Canadian university and he can travel especially among Western culture and there's a whole lot of people that live as if there isn't any God at all, that there's just this present material world. And it's really having a sensation because he he analyzes how that story develops and he debunks some of the stories. So you want to read a really involved analysis that a whole bunch of people are reading now. It's really heavy-duty sledding, but it's Charles Taylor's book called The Secular Mind. You're all influenced by the secular mind. For example, it's right here in our school. Like if you're a public school teacher, what can you say about the ultimate supreme being in the universe? Teachers, public school teachers, you have to be really careful not to do in your classroom. You can't mention God, right? He's the no word. Is that true or not? Where did that come from? I don't want to debate about that, and you can get all angry about that, but I want you to begin to think about it. I want you to get disturbed in that you care. Because, see, you live in a culture where just 50 years ago, all of you would have mentioned God, especially in Texas. But now in the public arena out there, you can't mention God. I want to share with you what idolatry is. Like, let's suppose there really is a God, 
And we have a ceremony that we're celebrating how our kids have grown and how they've developed and how they've been taught and everything. And he's the one that gave all of them the abilities they have. He gave all of them the physical health that they had. He gave all of them the intellectual abilities. He has sustained them. He sustained their parents. He's the one that gave all the material support. But we have a ceremony where you can't mention him at all in the whole ceremony. Even a kid can't mention him. You know what that is? It's idolatry. That's idolatry. What idolatry is, is when I act as if God isn't there. And I want to tell you something, that you're all worshipers. Whatever ceremony you have, you are worshiping. So what you'll do is you'll celebrate like the God of reason, human reason. You'll have speeches that talk about how we can do it. So you worship human strength. You watch the Olympics and you celebrate physical power. And then you make statues. So outside of Texas Stadium, we have a statue of Tom Landry. And if you just live for NFL football, he's one of the great pantheon. Now, Tom himself would be horrified by that. But there's thousands of people in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they worship the NFL. All I'm illustrating to you, all of you are built for worship. And what idolatry is, if you turn away from the living God, if you turn away from the one that really is there, you don't get away from worship. Everybody that I meet say, well, the scientist doesn't worship anything. Oh, yeah, they do. If you're a materialistic evolutionist, you worship nature because you believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're here today because millions upon millions upon millions of years ago, things began to collide. And then if you're a biologist, you skip over the whole story that went on for millions upon millions of years. You're not that much into energy and the, the cooling of elements and making the universe. But you're really into a primordial soup that was present on planet Earth and that somehow became impregnated with life and little amoebas began to reproduce themselves. And magically, you see, magic, you all know it isn't magic. It's just biological forces. Yeah, but how in the world did you go from elements and compounds to create amoebas? Where did the life come from? And what caused them to keep being able to reproduce themselves? And how did you jump from amoeba to tree shoes? And man, I just jumped incredible big distances. So if you're a materialist evolutionist, you're the biggest worshiper I've ever met. And I think you worship the craziest God in the world because you think chance and probabilities, nothing in my whole life, in none of my experience has ever shown that if you shake things up, and just keep shaking that randomly you can take a bunch of lumber and just shake it up and shake wire up. And man, you can do all that and generate houses. But you're telling me that the whole intricate universe came that way. And you think I'm an idiot because I still believe in this old-fashioned idea. And then what you'll do if you study harder, you will become a stoic that says, oh, there's reason behind it. So how do you talk to a crowd like that? Paul gets disturbed. And so what he does is he begins to connect. And this is what I want us to learn to do with the church family, not being afraid. What we've done as evangelicals, we're afraid, so we lock the message up right here. We don't go into the colleges. We don't go into the universities. And we even create a whole alternative culture because we're afraid that our kids are going to fall off the deep end if they go out there. Well, our kids are falling off the deep end like crazy because they've never seen the power of God really show up. And they, and they need to be raised in homes where moms and dads, like all of us, are really disturbed about those that don't worship God. Not in the fact that we want to kill them and that we're angry with them, but we want to reach them with the truth. It's a big difference. 
So Paul is disturbed about the city, and it doesn't say that he organizes his whole alternative Athenian movement and develop his own radio station and everything. What he does is go to the marketplace. He goes to the marketplace, and he starts talking to people. How many of you have gone to the mall this week? How many of you have been together out there? How many of you have gone to city council meetings and all that? That's what Paul's talking about. It says the apostle Paul saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue. He went to the Jews like he always did. He talked to God-fearing Greeks. And he also dialogued in the marketplace with those who happened to be there. How many of you have ever happened to meet someone that didn't believe in Jesus? That's what Apostle Paul is doing. I want us to be caught up in that. I want you to figure out where can you happen to meet people that don't know your Jesus yet and where, that I can meet that don't know Jesus. Paul's talking in the marketplace. Now, what happens when you start making those connections? What happens is people start dialoguing with you, and he met a group of Epicureans like Philip. There's a bunch of Epicureans. There's a bunch of Stoic philosophers. Those are like Stephen, and they're disputing with him. They're debating back and forth. Don't be afraid of good debates back and forth. They're dialoguing. They're debating. And then they, they mock him a little bit. They say, what's this seed picker? What they do is they're arrogant. These Epicureans say, this man that we're talking with in the marketplace, what he does, he's like a little bird that goes from one city to the next. And what he does as a little bird is he picks up a little seed thought here, and he picked up a little seed thought here, picked up a little bit of seed thought here. But many he's come up with kind of a weird combination. We'd like to study with him. I mean, we'd like to have him share with us what he believes. I want you to learn something, especially for young people to learn that. They're being very arrogant. And doctors and -and so-and-so tend to be arrogant. We tend to think we know it all. And we tend to communicate to you. We use the fact that we think we know it all to put you down. If you're a true believer in Christ, don't ever let that bother you. My dad didn't have a college education. One of the most powerful meetings he had was in New Haven, Connecticut, in Yale. And the faculty got together and wouldn't let him teach there. But some business people like you rented a hall right next door. My dad had a ton of Yale students coming, a ton of Yale faculty members, and a lot of them got saved that night because the gospel's powerful. D.L. Moody went over in, in, in his mighty crusades, went over to England and Oxford and Cambridge, the Lord powerfully used, and D.L. Moody crucified the English language, but he presented the gospel with authenticity and care and power, and he believed in it. That's what Paul was like. Only Paul didn't crucify the Greek land. He's a brilliant guy. But I want us to get out there, and I wanted you to pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, that we're not going to be afraid to get out there in the university. Some of you that I'm teaching to right now are teaching in the university, and I want to bless you. You're following in the circles of the Apostle Paul. So what happens when you get out there? What should you do? After they invite you, they put you down, they say you're just a seed picker, but then they say, hey, we want to come and hear you. So they take you up on the Areopagus, which is like it's the court. And back in Athens, this was the governmental court. It was the university court. It's the social court. It's the mixture of everything. I've been at the Areopagus. It's right a little bit away from the Parthenon, the big temple. You go down this incline because the Pantheon's way up on a hill. And then you go up on another smaller hill. And that was called the Mountain Areopagus. Are means mountain. It's the mountain of the Areopagus right there. So a large crowd gathered together, and they're going to listen to the Apostle Paul. What should you say to the university crowd? You need to learn with your points of agreement. If you want to influence people, the Greek Aristotle taught you, if you want to reach a crowd, 
you need to start out with what you agree on. Like when my kids used to go to UT, there was a guy that on the big open campus, which is like the Agora where they would have open thing, every single day he would wear a big sign and with a megaphone he would shout out saying, you're a bunch of perverts going to hell. Boy, that really touched a lot of students' lives. Now, did he tell the truth? Kind of. (laughs) Was it a really good way to connect with University of Texas students? Not too good. Do you really connect when you just get angry with unbelievers? And you start out telling them all the things you think the unbelievers are doing wrong. You don't have any influence. You already made a fight. Like some of you have unbelieving relatives. I mean, they start out your family gathering baiting you, and you automatically get in a fight with them. The Apostle Paul knows how to speak to an antagonistic audience, and I need to learn from him, and so do you need to learn with them. You want to begin with common points of connection. You lead people when you're teaching them. If you're teaching them in Sunday school, if you're teaching your kids, if you're teaching high school kids, you're teaching college kids, one of the things we can learn from the Apostle Paul, you need to begin where people are. And then you also want to begin where they are and also with some things where they are that you can agree on. Then you can take them to where you need to go. So what did the Apostle Paul use as this point of connection? He uses a really powerful thing. Look what it says. Then they took him and brought him to the meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you're bringing strange ideas, verse 20 to our ears, and we want to know what this means. All Athenians and all foreigners who live there, they spent their time doing nothing. That's the way some of you will agree. All they do is sit there talking and listening to the latest ideas. That's a good description of the university. And I want to ask you, do you really just want to talk about ideas or do you just want to learn a new thing? Like this morning as I talked to you, do you really want to know the truth or do you just want to defend your position? A ton of people in the world, it's the pursuit of truth. It's not truth. It's the pursuit of truth. And you live in a culture that says that you can't ever find the truth, but man, we can have a really good time arguing about it till we get there. But I want to know, every single one of you in the room, in the next few minutes, the Apostle Paul is going to tell us the truth. And if you really want to hear it, you won't mock and you won't, you won't attack. You'll listen. And some of you won't come to Jesus today, but you'll be truthful. And you, deep in your heart, you really, really, really want to find out the truth. If that's true, then eventually you're going to find the truth. But I also want you to know that Apostle Paul is very honest. This crowd starts out. They're mocking him. Every audience that you talk to, you can listen. Some of you today, in your soul, you're a critic. You distance yourself. You, you, you already debate when someone's trying to teach you something. You close yourself, and then you attack. Even if you're, you have an agreement, you're looking for the point that you don't agree with. There were a lot of people in Paul's audience that day. So the Apostle Paul starts out, and he says, men of Athens, and that's the way he want to begin. He addresses just like he uses the right cultural form. You see, we've had Paul sit down a lot. Remember, Jesus sat down to teach. In a Jewish synagogue, you stood up to read God's word, and you sat down to teach because God's word was more important than the human exposition. 
In Athens at the university, you stood up to give your address because the important thing is what a human teacher did. And Paul is following the convention. He says, men of Athens, and he starts out where they are. Look what he says. He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. That's a point of contact. How many of you would say that most of the people that you meet aren't really that down on religion? Like, come on, even the university. Is religion really, really, really by the majority of people being put down? No. Religion is a common ground. Like, most people will agree, like, you can have your religion, I can have mine. I want you to be able to go to your church. I want you to be able to go to your synagogue. I want you to be able to go to your mosque. I want you to be able to be religious. I want you to be able to do your thing. Just be careful not to bring it into the public marketplace. And, and in fact, I'll even let you, you can read your holy books in the morning or at night. That's really a good thing. What I want you to know is that common ground in almost all societies, and it's really become a common ground in our society, is people are into religion. You say, well, you can use religion of a good thing, of a bad thing. Paul knows that. But what he does is use this common ground that almost everybody that's a human being is religious. Scientists are very religious when I really get to know them. Everybody's really religious. And what I mean by that is everybody wants to get in touch with the spiritual. Like how many of you have some friends that are totally turned away from their Southern Baptist upbringing or their Bible church upbringing, but man, they're really into yoga. They're religious. And what they did is they took their religious upbringing they were raised with, and now they've adopted a whole other story. And most of them don't know zip about how yoga developed and what Buddhism is and, and what Confucianism is and what Taoism is. A lot of them don't even know what that is. They just love the spirit. Some of you will even be in study groups where this is a spiritual study group. And we want to listen to the spirits. We want to be listened to those immaterial parts of us. And we're going to have meditation. Some of you in business are going to go to conventions where they have all of you be quiet. And you get in touch with the inner powers. And you really learn how to get rid of all the extraneous stuff and get in. Religion's really back in in our culture. The Apostle Paul uses that. And it says that you are very religious. As I walked up here, you have all these objects that you worship. And I've even found here an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. So the Apostle Paul is walking up there and he sees there's Zeus, there's Aphrodite, there is even the Roman emperor. There's all these different gods all around. And then he notices this one thing and they have to the unknown God. Because if you're intellectual, if you're intellectual, you want to really be open. So you want to be able to declare, man, there might be someone or something out there that we don't know yet. That's our quest. So as Apostle Paul starts at his message, he says, I noticed among you that you have one of your worship centers dedicated to the unknown God. That's his point of contact. What he says is, I'm going to explain the God that's unknown, and I'm going to make him known. And now he continues his points of contact. He says this. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim them to you. I'm going to tell you what he's like. The Apostle Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything in it. So the very first thing the Apostle Paul said, you say, well, a lot of people don't agree that there's a creator. I want you to know that very few people really, in the big scheme of things, don't think that behind the universe 
There's somebody bigger than you and I. You all heard that song, somebody bigger than you and I. Remember that? That's acceptable. Now, there are people that will deny that, but, but it's pretty agreed. And this is what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's saying the unknown God is the one that created the universe. He created the heavens and he created the earth. And then he makes a point that almost all the philosophers on the Areopagus, doesn't it make sense if there's a great God that's out there that he doesn't live in this building? Some of you are going to meet some people that say, well, I don't need to go to church to worship him. I can worship God anyway. Anybody ever heard that as an argument for why they shouldn't come? How do you respond? You should say, you know, that's true. Like if you have an idea that when you walked in this morning, that suddenly because you walked into this building, that Yahweh has been here all week long. At night, it's empty, and he's just waiting for you. He's been right here, the unseen presence of God. He's especially localized up there by the baptistry. I hear it all the time. We've come into the sanctuary. We have come into this place to worship him. A secular person will destroy that. Is that what the Bible teaches You see, what that leads to is you build holy places. This planet is filled with holy places. You know why you do that? Because if you can lock your God up, you don't have to listen to him during the week. You can get away from him. That makes sense? The Apostle Paul says, we all agree. If there's a God that made the heavens and earth, then all the human temples that are made can't contain him. Even the Jews who were told to build a tabernacle knew that the Holy of Holies didn't limit where God was. And and the prophets would say, even the heavens, it'll say God uses the universe, all of heaven and earth, as his footstool. You got me? That's powerful. Then all the Athenian philosophers were saying, we agree with that. We know that the great reason that might be out there or whatever gods there might be, If they made the universe, then they don't live in buildings. So that's another point of agreement. So I want you to really ask yourself, do I think that the eternal God of the universe can be locked up in physical buildings? The answer would be no, I don't believe that. That would be a common point of agreement. Then he goes on and says this. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands, and he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So that's the second point. Number one, if there's a God that created all the universe, then he can't be locked up in buildings. Everybody agree with that? Do you agree with, if there is this ultimate being that's out there, that he is the one, where did your life come from? Where did your breath come? And where did your existence come from? When all of you need to think about that hard this morning, why are you breathing this morning? Why are you living this morning? If you're a materialist, if you're really a thoroughgoing materialist, you're sitting there saying all the art in the world is just a collision of particles. When I die and my breath stops, I just become part of the particles and I just become dirt. And that's all there is. And all I just want to say is you're not going to ever write beautiful music believing that. But you live in a world where humans write beautiful music, unless they're under totalitarianism. You understand what I'm telling you? You live in a world where some of you paint pictures. You can't explain why you want to paint pictures. You want to build buildings. 
what you really can't explain if you believe that in nothing you live and move and have your being and all there is is the universe. In fact, as a scientist, you really believe you need to be truthful. But you can't explain to me your whole career depends upon when you do experiments that you tell the truth in the journals. And if everyone lies in the journals, you can't make any progress. But as a scientist, you can't explain to me why it's really important to tell the truth. Because who cares if it's just a collision of particles? That's what Paul is arguing. It's a point of agreement. If you'll think about it, he's saying that In him you live and move and have your being. He is the source of all your life. And then he says this. If there is that big a God, he doesn't need us. Even as we sit here this morning, and this is as far as we'll get this morning in Paul's speech, but I want to share with you, a lot of you are really concerned this morning about whether you can serve him enough. And you're really concerned about how do I keep my life going? How do I keep my family going? How can I keep this church going? And the idea is we need to serve him more. We need to be devoted to him. We need to come up with better plans. We need to come up with with better strategies. We need better giftedness. We need different this and different that. It's really important to understand this. The great God of the universe doesn't need me this morning. You hear what I just said? Do you realize the great God of the universe isn't dependent upon me at all. He's not dependent upon you. I am so glad. Because I depended upon him. I move. I got up this morning because of him. My heart beats this morning because of him. I'm speaking because of him. If I've said anything this morning that touched your life with truth, it's because of him. And we can worship him because we don't serve him because he's dependent upon us. We serve him. We adore him. We love him. We abide in him because he is the creator that just by his word said, let there be light. And there was light. The apostle Paul is saying even the Athenian philosophers agreed that if there was this great eternal universal being, that he wasn't dependent upon little buildings all over the Roman Empire with little priests serving him, and if they didn't feed him, the little wooden idol would fall over and be starving to death, and the wooden idol didn't eat anything anyway. Paul was joining with the philosophers in saying, that is nutty. If there is this great creator God, then he's not dependent upon us. 